Good evening. In the news tonight, resistance grows in Portland, Oregon, to the Trump administration's heavy-handed crackdown on Black Lives Matter protests. The nation mourns the death of civil rights hero John Lewis. New York City continued its cautious reopening today. In New York, I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of The Independent, and this is the WBAI Evening News for Monday, July 20th, 2020. Resistance is growing in Portland, Oregon, to President Trump's deployment of hundreds of federal agents in that city to suppress Black Lives Matter protests now in their 53rd consecutive day. The American Civil Liberties Union has filed a lawsuit to stop the Trump administration after federal agents were filmed last week jumping out of unmarked vans to snatch protesters off the streets without any probable cause. Trump's move has been denounced by both Oregon Senators, Oregon Governor Kate Brown and Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler speaking here. The videos, the pictures, the experiences that we're all witnessing here in Portland should be shocking to all Americans. The words and actions from President Trump and the Department of Homeland Security have shown that this is an attack on our democracy. The federal intervention has also swelled the ranks of protesters. On both Saturday and Sunday nights, a wall of moms took to the front lines to shield the other protesters from being attacked. The Portland protesters also made their distaste for law enforcement known on Saturday night when they set on fire the headquarters of the Portland Police Association, the cop union that has thwarted police reforms for decades and repeatedly succeeded in keeping killer police on the force. This is the Portland Police Department belatedly showing up on the scene. In other national news, President Trump is reportedly trying to block billions of dollars for testing and contact tracing as part of an upcoming coronavirus relief bill, as well as funds for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The move comes as the U.S. death toll from the coronavirus has passed 140,000 and the number of confirmed cases is surging in much of the south and the west of the country, including Florida, which has averaged more than 11,400 confirmed new cases per day over the past week, according to data collected by the New York Times. Trump's intransigence is being mimicked by a number of Republican governors who refuse to enact laws that would, that would require all people in their state to wear masks in public. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp has gone one step further, seeking restraining orders against cities in his state that enact their own mask laws. This is Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms defending her city's mask law yesterday on CBS's Face the Nation. Very clear guidelines that we should follow, very clear metrics that we should follow. Face coverings are one. Mm-hmm. We, Atlanta sits in two counties in this state, two of the highest counties for infection rates from COVID-19. So this is not about politics. This is about people. It's about the over 3,100 people who have died in our state. We have 130,000 who have tested positive. Meanwhile, New York City continues to gradually reopen. Today, some art and entertainment venues like zoos and botanical gardens were allowed to reopen for outdoor activities at a limited capacity. But stringent restrictions will remain on indoor activities. Gyms, malls, movies, and indoor dining will still not be allowed.
This is Mayor Bill de Blasio. When it comes to indoors, carefully, very individually. So some will not resume in phase four, certainly not right away. That continues to be, first of all, indoor dining. That could have started earlier. We've said that's not happening. That continues to not happen. That is very high risk, and we've seen that around the country. Uh, museums, not yet. Malls, not yet. Still closed for now. America has lost one of its heroes. Congressman John Lewis died on Friday at the age of 80 from pancreatic cancer. The son of Alabama sharecroppers, Lewis was a co-founder of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in 1960. He would go on to be arrested more than 40 times and had his skull fractured at the Bloody Sunday March in Selma, Alabama in 1965 that led to the passage of the Voting Rights Act. He was elected to Congress in 1986, where he served until the time of his death. This is Lewis speaking at Harvard in 2018 about the need to cause what he called good trouble. You're never too young or too old to lead, to speak up, to speak out, and get in good trouble, necessary trouble. Karen Bass, chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, said the best way to honor John Lewis's legacy is for a new Voting Rights Act to be passed. You know, I think one of the best ways that we could honor him is to make sure that the Voting Rights Act passed that is sitting over in the Senate and has been there for over 200 200 days. Speaking of voting, the New York City Board of Elections is still counting mail-in votes from the June 23rd Democratic primaries. On Thursday, tenant organizer and Democratic Socialist Marcella Mateñas came from behind to declare victory in the hotly contested race for Assembly District 51 in Sunset Park. She defeated 13-term incumbent Felix Ortiz. We will be talking with Matanius about her big victory and what comes next after the break. Also here in New York, an estimated 15,000 bike riders rallied Saturday afternoon in support of Black Lives Matter. The black-led bike ride journeyed from Flushing Meadows Park to Times Square to Gracie Mansion on the Upper East Side where Mayor de Blasio lives. Here are the cyclists celebrating their arrival in Times Square. The Justice bike rides have been held each of the past seven Saturdays. In the second half of the show, we'll learn more about these massive mobile bike protests from the co-founder of the group that organizes the rides. We will be back with more after this short break. We march today for jobs and freedom. But we have nothing to be proud of. Of hundreds and thousands of our brothers are not here. But they're receiving starvation wages or no wages at all. Those who have said be patient and wait, we must say that we cannot be patient. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now. The time will come when we will not confine our march into Washington. We will march through the South, through the streets of Jackson, through the streets of Danville, through the streets of Cambridge, through the streets of Birmingham. Wake up, America, wake up, for we cannot stop, and we will not and cannot be patient. That was John Lewis speaking at the 1963 March on Washington. The Georgia congressman died on Friday at the age of 80. He was the last surviving speaker 
uh, from the March on Washington, which also featured Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. You're listening to the WBAI Evening News, presented by the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website, now in its 20th year of publishing. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. Before we move on, I also want to note that Friday saw the passing of a second civil rights-era hero, C.T. Vivian, a legendary field organizer and top lieutenant to Martin Luther King, who was also arrested and beaten many times during that era. Vivian was 95 years old. May he, too, rest in power. And now we turn to our first segment and what can happen when people get organized and use their right to vote. On Thursday, Marcella Matenius was declared the winner in a hotly contested race for Assembly District 51 in Sunset Park in Red Hook. She defeated Felix Ortiz, a 26-year incumbent and assistant speaker of the New York State Assembly. Matenius is a Peruvian-born immigrant who became a tenant organizer after her family was evicted from its home about 15 years ago by a predatory landlord. She is also a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. Marcella, welcome to the WBAI Evening News. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here with you. Great. Uh, first of all, uh, you know, there's so much work that goes into a campaign, both with you as the candidate and all the staff and volunteers. Uh, what did it feel like uh, the moment you learned that you had, uh, in fact, uh, won the race? I was in shock. Um, this whole issue of counting absentee ballots was nerve-wracking enough. Um, we had caught up um, to the lead that the incumbent had had us on Election Day, and then we, we moved into the lead. But there were still a 1,000 ballots that were... Um, invalidated by the Board of Elections, and that potentially could have been a fight that if he, if the incumbent chose to continue, plus an additional 500 affidavit ballots. So despite my team being like super excited and wanting to call the election on the inside with our group, I was still telling them to hold on. There was stuff that was going to, you know, we still had all these other ballots and we didn't know what was going to happen. And, you know, between then and now, I've been back at work full time. So about an hour later, um, while I was on a conference call, my team was trying to contact me because we heard that the um, incumbent had conceded. So again, we were literally getting prepared to wait for like another week before we actually knew the results. So it came as a really big surprise. Okay. Well, congratulations on that. Uh, and looking back at your uh, campaign and how it was organized, uh, what do you think y'all did that was uh, so successful that enabled y'all to uh, defeat uh, someone who had been in office for, for so long and was uh, really a power broker in Albany? I think it really was like the years of, of work that I had put into this community and the relationships that I had built over that over that span of time that really was a difference. We already had a base to kind of like reignite. And I think that people really resonated with our message, really resonated with, you know, this idea of putting people before profits. And I think that the um, this pandemic really also shifted the way people thought and, you know, the experiences that they've been going through really, really pushed for the change that they wanted. Um, and I think that we're starting to see it, not just here, but like in other races as they're starting to to <clears throat> to actually identify who the winners are. Okay, and the the state legislature uh, convened back into session today. Uh, there's a lot on the agenda, in, uh, including the 
situation with uh, tenants uh, here in New York City and elsewhere in the state that are at risk of uh, eviction uh, due to the pandemic and and loss of uh, employment and wages. What would you like to see the state legislature do to address this situation, uh, given your long history as a tenant organizer? I think the the first thing that we need to do is, you know, they're talking about opening up the courts. That can't happen. I think people are, every month that goes by, they're getting deeper and deeper in debt because they they don't have the money for the rent. You're referring to the housing court? Correct. Housing court needs to just be (laughs) shut down. For now, I think it's, it's, it's very ironic that they're willing to open up restaurants and bars and people that have money can 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 do business but they're not they're not allowing them inside but yet you want to let brown and black people that are predominantly pulled into housing court you know that it's okay to it's okay to expose them so i think that people are really starting to see the difference in the way our government works and really wanting to push for the difference but i think the other really really big thing to understand is that we need to suspend rent cancel it completely because folks don't have money um, you need to do it at least for the duration of the pandemic, and probably we need to look at it more after. So a, a complete uh, forgiveness of debt rent. Um, we need to uh, pass a good cause eviction bill because there's thousands and thousands of tenants right now that don't have basic tenant protections. We need to make sure we're investing in social housing, and we need to make sure we're housing the homeless. How can someone quarantine if they don't have a home? And in the meantime, we've got shelters that are at capacity and we've got people on the street that have no type of, of protection and are probably being exposed. And, you know, at that rate, also just sharing, you know, also helping to pass along, you know, this mm-hmm. COVID. And so we have to we have to really think about how we're going to protect people. And just, there's such a rush for our government to open back up because of the um, economic hit that we're that we're that we're experiencing but we also need to understand that there's a cost coming to that and so there sure is a right yeah you know everyone deserves a right to to basic things and we already don't have it and that was going into the pandemic so there's more of a desperate need to make sure that we're providing it now and we have to be really careful about what's going on we've got huge numbers of people particularly in my district particularly in Sunset Park we are already disadvantaged because we're living in subpar conditions because of the housing insecurities that we face. Um, we're close to a highway, so there's years and years of solution. Combine that with folks that are either working class people or undocumented, so they don't have um, they don't have access to medical care. They don't have um, paid sick leave. They're constantly being exposed. You know, and so these are our frontline workers, and we are seeing the way people have been getting hit in this community, and the amount of the, the huge numbers of of community members that we've lost as a result of this. And so, it's 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 mind-boggling to me how we're able to open up certain streets to allow business patrons to continue, but then there's so many people that are still hurting and suffering, and there's there seems to be no help at all. Right. And, and uh, in your campaign, you criticized the incumbent for being you know, somewhat of a, a passive uh, presence in the, in the community. And um, when, when you arrive in this assembly next January and even before then, now that you've won the election, how, how do you envision engaging and empowering uh, 
your constituents in, in your district? How, how would you do things differently? So one of the things that we, we, we looked at this campaign was really about building a grassroots movement of the working class. The goal was to get me into office. Um, but we knew that that was going to be a hard task and there's a chance that we may not be able to get there. And so what we really wanted to do was really bring people in, have them understand the individual power that they have, and then bring them together and, and show them what we can do collectively. And so wanting to continue that organizing that I'm doing um, with the folks in this community, I've also through the years built a lot of relationships with elected officials. And so I have that as kind of like um, something to that I'm coming into. So I'm not coming in not knowing anybody. I've actually got gotten really good relationships with some elected officials. And it's also about continuing to build relationships with new people, building coalitions, plugging people in, building leadership development. I mean, I think that we have seen over the years how it's movements that really make long-lasting changes. Okay. And uh, I have time for one more question here, which just kind of building off of that is... uh uh, how do you envision yourself, and, and it appears there's going to be maybe several other uh, Democratic Socialists uh, heading uh, to Albany uh, next year. Um, how do you envision uh, you and your group uh, being able to navigate the, the power structure in Albany? I mean, you'll we'll be a, in a distinct minority. Um, I mean, for example, the, I mean, the Assembly Speaker, Carl Heasty, uh, funneled something like $80,000 to your opponent to help uh, bolster his campaign, so so clearly yes, there's some did. powerful people that did not want you uh, to to win this race. So how how will you you know engage engage with them once once you're there and 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 be able to have influence and impact? So you know something that I was taught very early on is you need to learn to get along with everyone. You don't have to agree with their policies and procedures and you don't have to be best friends, but you do have to find a way to kind of like work together. Um, I think thinking back, if you, if you, if you look at it through the DSA lens and, and look at the fact that we had one democratic socialist in Albany last year and we were able to get historic rent laws, I mean, just to think about what we're able to achieve if there's actually five of us in there, um, but understanding also that there is this big um, shift that's happening and folks want to, uh, folks are starting to get more engaged because of the way that the government has been failing them. So this is a, great, a huge opportunity for us to really use that to try and engage. But also, again, it's about building uh, new relationships and it's taken a really long time for us to get to where we're at, and the only way we were going to make real lasting changes is to make sure that we're electing people into office that have the same vision. That's not something that happens overnight. That's something that right. takes time. But you can certainly see that that's starting to happen, especially there was a huge movement when a bunch of Democrats decided to join the independent Democratic, you know, the, the right, IDC. Right. And what an uproar it was, and it took a little bit of time, but people educated themselves, they organized, and they got those folks out and brought in new people in. And that I'm hopeful and I'm seeing through our organizing is just going to keep growing when people realize the power that they actually have to be able okay. to make those changes. Yeah, we'll have to leave it there, but uh, that's, a, that's a, a really hopeful vision, and, and we, again, congratulate you on your victory and, and look forward to hearing more from you in the, in the coming months and years. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Okay, we'll be back with more after a short break. You are listening to the WBAI Evening News presented by The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website, now in its 20th year of publishing. I'm John Tarleton, the Indy's Editor-in-Chief. In our second segment this evening, we look at the massive collective bike rides that began shortly after Black Lives Matter protests erupted here in New York City. The rides continue to grow. On Saturday, an estimated 15,000 cyclists gathered beneath the Unisphere in Flushing Meadows Park in Queens and proceeded to ride into Times Square and then over to Gracie Mansion, home of Mayor Bill de Blasio, the would-be police reformer turned NYPD mouthpiece. This marked the seventh consecutive Saturday the Justice Bike Rides has been held. Joining us this evening to talk about the Justice Bike Rides is Orlando Hamilton, co-founder of Street Riders NYC, the group that organizes uh, these rides. Uh, before he was a chef and then was laid off during the pandemic, he says he's, quote, just a regular dude who saw a void and filled it. And uh, yeah, uh, uh, he certainly did. Uh, Orlando, welcome to the WBAI Evening News. How you doing, man? Doing very good. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. So can you? you. Certainly. Uh, So, you know, we have a few minutes here. And uh, can we start just by uh, having you describe how these uh, rides got off the ground? uh, So what the the inspiration was and and how it it got going? Okay. Um, I'll try to say it as fast as possible. Basically, uh, I just started off going to different protests in the beginning and uh, we just repeatedly were getting attacked by the police and then curfew hit and it just got really stressful Uh, so I ended up bringing my bike out and I would ride through the large marching protest and just call for bikes to come to the front and uh, talk and some days it would only be like two or three and then other days it'd be about 10. Uh, and just doing that three or four times a day kind of uh, made everybody aware of what I was doing. And before you knew it, within like two weeks, I was bringing up about 3,000 bikes. And uh, it ended up kind of interrupting the protest. So we had to make a decision to uh, establish ourselves as our own entity and start the uh, throwing our own protests, right? And, and who who's participating in these in these massive bike rides? Who's who's coming out for them? If you can kind of describe uh, everybody who's involved. <laughs> everybody. everybody. Uh, the organization is just me and one other person, Peter. Um, but everybody comes out to these rides. It's insane. 
Uh, if you live in the Upper West Side, if you live in Bronx, if you live in Brownsville or Queens, or it doesn't matter. They come from everywhere. It's really astonishing. Mm. And in, in the past, uh, you know, here in in New York, uh, I mean, bike riding was you know often uh, sort of seen as I don't know something of a sort of a you know a white uh, white person crunchy granola you know kind of a activity, um, and, and you know the, the some of the bike lanes were you know heavily criticized for for catering to to that kind of uh, uh, you know social base. But it it sounds like this is 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 much more diverse than that, and, and, and that you're uh, maybe inspiring a lot of people who maybe haven't biked as much in the city before to start doing so. Yes. Um... I get DM'd or emails all the time uh, from people that constantly say they just are not comfortable riding a bike out in uh, New York City, in New York City, except with our bike protests. Uh, I've had at least 20 people tell me that they bought a bike because of our protests. So we're trying to, we're trying to create a different culture out there where it's not just black or white or old or young. It's like we can all come together. Since kids, we all loved riding bikes. So if we can just find that common ground of just joy and freedom within the bike, then it kind of gives everybody a chance to get to know each other and not feel so uh, alienated just because it was seen as a, a white male type activity right and and i understand this uh um this kind of uh massive uh, collective bike ride uh, may start happening in other cities as well yes i mean technically it already has i'm from los angeles and i have friends out there that are doing these bike rides too now um but we plan on taking our growing movement to other states as well COVID might throw a little, uh, throw a couple of obstacles in our way, but we still plan on establishing ourselves outside of New York as well. That's great. And uh, as far as here in the city, uh, I, I take it there will be another uh, Justice bike ride on, on Saturday? Yes, sir. Every Saturday it, we do a ride at a different location. Right. And, and um, I know you... you, you you never divulged the route in advance, but uh, can you tell us uh, uh, when and where people will be gathering on this upcoming Saturday? Uh, I can tell you that people will be gathering on the Street Riders NYC Instagram to find out where to gather. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> people can uh, find out more on uh, social media on Instagram at Street Riders NYC. Uh, Orlando Hamilton, yes, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate uh, you just shedding some light on what we're doing out here. Yeah, no, what y'all are doing is is amazing, and it's it's great to see it flourishing. Thank you, thank you. Okay. Good night. All right, uh, for our listeners, real quick, I want to encourage everyone who can do so to give generously to WBAI during its fund drive and help keep shows like this on the air. You can give by calling 516-620-3602 or going straight to give to WBAI.org. Again, that phone number, 516-620-3602. You can make a one-time donation or, better yet, sign up as a WBAI buddy for $10 per month. 
and help keep shows like this on the air. Thanks again for joining this evening. A special thank you to Amba Gergarian and Renee Feltz for their help with this evening's show. You can follow the latest news from The Independent at independent.org. Once again, that phone number to give to WBAI, 516-620-3602. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back same time next week.